This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. British wheelchair rugby has never been in such rude health. Reigning Paralympic champions for the very first time and now getting ready to stage the European Championships in Cardiff this spring. And one great British boss has overseen it all. I'm John. And I'm Michael. And this is the spin-off series from Anything But Footy where we focus on the women and men behind British sport. This is Great British Bosses where we speak to the people you don't normally hear from but a key to the ongoing Olympic and Paralympic success. Hello, I'm David Pond. I'm chair of the Wheelchair Rugby European Championships 2023. Before we get on to the event, I have to ask, how do you get from being a teacher to working in the Navy for 28 years to running a consultancy and then being in charge of great British wheelchair rugby? It's not your normal way of becoming a sports CEO. No, it's, it's probably not. The truth is, I'm easily bored. I mean, that's that's probably the real uh, uh, the real answer. And, and and interestingly, the question I often get is, how did you, you know, what kept you in the navy for thirty years? And actually, that was the that was the answer. People used to think it's my answer would be, well, because I got promoted or whatever else. But but actually, the real reason was that every two and a half years in the navy, you change your job, and, and that variety is is really um, really inspiring, and it keeps you really focused on um on on what you're actually doing and i think that is the answer um so um i had a full career in the royal navy i enjoyed it enormously um i decided to leave slightly early uh, and the reason i did is for that reason i wanted to broaden my leadership experiences um and initially um having left the navy uh, i did do a lot of consultancy around leadership and uh, and uh, training of teams working in both the private uh, and the public sector and indeed the charitable sector um, and enjoyed that enormously. But I had an approach by a headhunter, which I couldn't ignore, which was the challenge of could I look at wheelchair rugby and with small inverted commas, professionalise it ahead of London 2012? Because the armed forces used to be a way where athletes could 
compete at their highest level while also having a, a career. What did you get from the armed forces that made you such a good leader? Well, first of all, I don't know if I'm a good leader or not. I mean, that's rather to judge, I guess. But when I first did officer training, I went to the Britannia Royal Naval College uh, at Dartmouth. And I remember really, really clearly in the first week, we were all sat down in a, a big lecture theatre and uh, they put one of those, you're, you're both of you far too young to remember these, but these big floppy screens and they used to have a projector. And, um, and we all went in there and sat down and they put one thing on this big floppy screen and it was an image of a sailor. So an ordinary sailor and that's, that was all. And underneath that was a caption. And the caption underneath it was the greatest single factor and I've never, ever forgotten that, the greatest single factor. And just think that through a little bit. And actually what the message was that to lead, you have to understand that the greatest single factor is that group of people, those individuals rather, rather than the group of people, the individuals who make up those teams are the greatest single factor. And so to lead, lead well, you need to love your sailors. And that means thinking about their career development, it means thinking about um, their, their home life. If you're away at sea for a long time, what, what's happening at home? Because, it, you know, if they've got things happening at home that actually they can't really deal with or, or they're not being supported with, then they're not going to function effectively when you're out at sea. And that's a message that that is something that has been inculcated into me throughout. So for me, the whole leadership bit is about how do I look after my people? How do I love my people? How do I develop my people? What do I think about my people? What's worrying my people? What do they need? Because if they're in, in a really good place, then they're going to deliver really well. And interestingly, you were at Loughborough and you were at Loughborough at a time where the likes of Clive Woodward and, and Sebastian Coe were also at Loughborough. But when you were there in the 70s, I guess sport wasn't a career option at that point. Sport wasn't the professional setup that we have now. There were very limited options to have a career in sport. Is that a fair comment? No, I think it's a really fair comment. Um, and, and, and people went to Loughborough. My group went to Loughborough probably like me because I was a decent sportsman. Um, or at least I thought I was a decent sportsman until I got to Loughborough, I have to say, because I realised actually I was a very, very average sportsman when I with the likes of the sorts of people that were around me. Um, and most people went there because they were they 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 loved sport, they uh, enjoyed sport. And then most of them, of course, the natural fallout of that was that you went into PE teaching. I mean, I went to Loughborough. That's exactly what I was going to do. And to take us back to that point, then what was if you like, the motivation for you then to seek the career in the armed forces after there was a little spell of teaching? So I, I, le I left Loughborough and uh, most amazing coach, by the way, at Loughborough, and again, an icon of leadership, was a guy called Jim Greenwood. And Jim Greenwood, if you look him up, it, he's one of the, you know, the real disciples behind the development of rugby, even professional rugby today. The book that he, that he wrote, which is called Total Rugby, I, I bet you both work and the others have read it. You know, it's that it's that good. And Jim Jim had um, played for Scotland and the Lions um, and, and was a coach at Loughborough for many, many years, coaching all those great players, the, you know, the Steve Smiths, the Frank Cottons, the Clive Woodwards, all of those players Jim, Jim was behind. But he was a wonderful, wonderful man and a wonderful leader. So he fixed me up with a job as, uh, as head of rugby and teaching English at Gresham School in Norfolk. 
And at the time, Gresham School had a guy called Nick Youngs, dad of the two Youngs boys now. Um, he was a young scrum half. He was just finishing when I got there. So sadly, I can't claim any credit for his greatness. I had nothing to do with it at all. But it was a fantastic uh, first 15 rugby team, which produced when I was there, um, still three England schoolboys. Um, and and I was so I was there coaching rugby. But the frustration for me was because I was coaching rugby, I couldn't play it. That was a real frustration. There was a guy on the staff who was uh, who had had 16 years in the Royal Navy, left the Royal Navy and then gone into teaching. And he said, you're a, he said, you're a mug. He said, you should join on a short service commission. He said, they'll give you as much rugby as you like and then come back to teaching. And that was the premise on which I joined the Navy. Not a great reason, is it, to join the Navy? But that is what I did. And having been in for a couple of years, I absolutely loved it. I loved everything about it. And, and so I applied for um, what was called a full career commission, and then I was retrained. I mean, effectively, that's what happens. And I, I retrained as, um, as an oceanographer and meteorologist specialising in anti-submarine warfare. Do you think it's still an option, David, to, to go that way? I think it's definitely, definitely there's an option to have a career after the armed forces. And I get really frustrated if I'm, if I'm honest. And again, you know, I'm, I'm clearly biased. It's, you know, it's difficult not to be biased having spent 30 years in the Royal Navy. But there's a certain irony for me that, that actually lots of people, and unless they've got a very specialist qualification, engineers and technical people tend to pick up jobs very, very quickly when they leave the armed forces. If you've got what I would call a more general career or a, or a, or a specialization which doesn't necessarily um, relate very easily to something outside people are very suspicious of employing you and that's even true in sport i've not i didn't find it easy i've not found it easy in sport i was wheelchair rugby fine but i i wouldn't say i've necessarily found it easy across sport and i think there are a number of reasons for that i think there's some perceptions about what it is to be in the military I think there's still this perception that, you know, to get things done, you shout orders out. And because you've got go braid on your arm, people listen to you. And, and in reality, that is so far from the truth. I mean, the reality of life is if you if you operated like that in a warship or if you operated it like that, you know, in places that I've worked in, in, in the Balkans or places like that, you probably achieve something but you're not really going to achieve optimum team performance. It just doesn't work like that. It goes back to what I said earlier about loving your people, really. Um, and I think one of the ironies is when we have a crisis, now is, now is a classic, you know, we've got all these strikes. What do we do? Well, we call in the armed forces because actually, you know what? Overnight, we train them to do border control. When I was, when I was at the Paralympics in, in 2012 and London 2012, what happened when all the security went down? We just brought all the armed forces in. So there is a recognition that these people, you know, these individuals can be trained very, very quickly to do a whole wide variety of tasks, whether it's driving ambulances for the NHS or, or you know, manning checkpoints here or doing whatever else there is. There is that recognition, but somehow that doesn't always translate into employers outside. Um, but to go back to your question in sport, is that an option? Then I think the answer is, Absolutely, it's an option, but it depends on what roles, because the trouble is that roles are very, um, that there's no generalization around roles, are there? That some roles are very specific, you know, performance director is a, is a particular role, head coach is a particular role. But if you're talking about more, what I would call more generic leadership roles, 
can someone from the armed forces go and lead an NGB? I hope I prove that they can, although there'll be those that say, yeah, but it was wheelchair rugby. It was a small Paralympic sport. Do I think I could go and lead British athletics? Actually, yeah, I can. Um, you know, I led, I led, you know, European forces in NATO. I commanded an enormous training establishment of 10,000 people. Do I think I'd lead British athletics? Yeah, I think I probably could, to be honest. Before we talk about your wheelchair rugby role, because we want to get into that, because you had some challenges in that, including losing funding um, mm. after after 2016. Just on that question, then, is sport in this country a closed shop? I mean, I've been fairly critical about some of that, as you, as I'm sure you'll be aware. I, I do think there's a lot of moving around the deck chairs. I do think, you know, when I look at appointments, you know, we move from... And I don't want to be specific here, and I'm not talking about anyone specific at all, because the other thing I would say is I think there are some great people in sport. There's no question about it. And, you know, as you said, we might come on to losing funding in a moment. Um, but what I would say, for example, at the moment that, you know, Catherine Granger has made a huge difference, I think, to UK sport and the way um, uh, way that it operates. Uh, as indeed, you know, the, the the CEO, the new CEO has, well, not new anymore, CEO has. And and so, you know, I don't want to be specific about any of those things. But I do think too many people move from one organisation to the other. And I'm personally not sure how healthy that is. And it, and interestingly, it's one, of the, it's one of the reasons people move around a lot in, in, the, in the armed forces. You know, there's a common denominator there. So there's a common kind of culture and there's a common way of operating but the freshness of bringing new people into 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 roles um is really really important for for innovation and for creativity and for all of those uh, you know other good reasons and i think the same could well apply to to sport so november 2009 you're appointed chief executive of great britain wheelchair rugby who courted who well, it's, that's interesting, really. I mean, I was a pro. I, I had, I'll be absolutely honest, and I'm almost embarrassed to say this. I'd never even heard of Wilshire Rugby, which said something to me and also said something to how I then approached the role, interestingly. But I'd never heard of it. So I was approached by a headhunter in London. If I'm honest, I was only half interested. I had an approach. I was half interested. I, I was enjoying actually being my own man, and I had plenty of work to do. I wasn't short of, I wasn't short of work. But I was intrigued by this because it was sport and wheelchair rugby. And I there was a little bit of me that was intrigued. And so I was courted by them. And my initial intent was only to do six months. So so the task was, I, I loosely say, to professionalise Great Britain wheelchair rugby. It was amateur-led, amateur-managed sport. It was a tiny sport, but it was about to get a huge amount of money from UK sport ahead of 2012. And they wanted, obviously, to make sure that that money was 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 you know tied up and and spent well and monitored well and the governance etc. Which required a different approach. So before we get on to what I guess was the low point of of losing funding in 2016 and how you managed that situation, what are your recollections then of of 2012 and the Paralympic Games and being involved in that kind of high performance sport environment and such a an amazing moment for the country as well. Yeah, I mean, it's an enormous privilege. I mean, anyone who's around in 2012 in sport must, you know, I, we must all think the same. It was a huge privilege. It was really, really exciting. I mean, if you remember, the weather was, I mean, everything worked, didn't it? The weather was great. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the fans were great. Everyone was behind it. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment, I think, for everyone. You know, we didn't do as well. And, and, and after that, there had to be some tough decisions, which I had to take. Some of those decisions I kind of probably knew before the games I was going to need to take. But it was just a great experience. And I think it was great for UK PLC. Um, I do worry now afterwards about the legacy. I'm not sure we delivered on the legacy. I'm not sure any Olympics and Paralympics wholly ever delivers on the legacy. But uh, overall, I think it was a great moment in British sport. It's funny you, you talk about the legacy there because that was going to be my next question. You praised Catherine Granger and Sally Mundy earlier, the new uh, leaders of of UK sport, and and they came in after 2016 when you had your funding cut. Mm. Was that again short termism? But just cutting it from that sport was just seemed a bizarre decision, and it wasn't just your sport. I was never comfortable with. If I'm honest, and again, this goes back to this business that you asked me earlier about coming in, you know, later from something else. If you've been part of that system, you kind of, I think, you kind of get caught up in the system. And so it's difficult to think outside it. That, that's what I think. So the idea, you know, the philosophy at the, at the time was win. And, and the phrase was no compromise. If I'm honest, I was never really comfortable with no compromise. Because I knew even in a military environment, you make compromises. Now, if ever there was an environment where you'd say there's no compromise, you'd say it was a military environment. But actually, there are compromises. There's always compromises. And if you're a leader and if you're, you know, it doesn't matter what you are, a CEO or whatever else, you're always having to evaluate the situation and it changes. So I was never really comfortable with that, if I'm honest with you, with that. But what I do understand, and it's it's easy for me in my position to sit back and be critical of, you know, decisions taken at that time it's much easier because I wasn't in that position um but what I do know because I've been in that position before uh, at a senior level in a different environment is you know there are lots of competing pressures there would have been a lot of government pressure for a start you know that we're putting all of this money into this and therefore we've got to deliver x y and z and if you want to carry on getting that amount of money then you've got to do this this and this I think though that there is a responsibility for leaders to manage upwards as well as at the levels and below. And, and when I when I talk to, as I often do, people who are aspiring to leaderships, that's one of the things I always talk about, how you manage upwards. Because in reality, as a young guy, I don't think I did manage upwards very well. And actually coming into sport on reflection now, I also don't think I necessarily, when I came in to start with, managed upwards very well. I don't think I managed the the political environment as well as I could have done. So short-termism, you know, I don't know. I mean, people were looking at the legacy. The legacy was something that, you know, our, people's homework was marked on. But, you know, how realistic was some of the legacy which was being perhaps proffered? And the fact is, you then lost the funding. You had to go and raise the money. And then you went on and won a gold medal. So uh, your team went on and, and won that gold medal in in Tokyo when in in the delayed games. Mm. Did it actually give the organisation more drive? In effect, do you know? I think it's a really interesting question, and, and it won't surprise you. I've reflected quite a lot on. So how did we do that? I do think there's something you know that's well known, which is around um, how you perform in adversity. And again, going back to the military, I could give you millions of examples of that. You know, you, you know, when the chips are really, really down, 
um, you've got two, there are two ways to go, aren't there? You either go down and you sink, the ship sinks, or actually, you know what? It's a galvanizing factor. It galvanizes you and actually brings you closer together and more determined to do something. So I think there was an element of the team, us all sitting down as a, together and looking at each other's eyes and saying, well, you know, how are we going to do this? Um, I mean, I remember very clearly, and I've spoken this story many times. You know, I got the phone call at 20 past eight, a few days before Christmas from Liz Nickel, a phone call I wasn't expecting to get. It just wasn't the question, wasn't what I was expecting. Um, I had no indication of it at all. That year, I'd been working with UK Sport, putting together the funding bid. It looked good. Um, I'll be honest, I thought everyone would probably be taking a bit of a cut after 2012. I, you know, I wasn't expecting necessarily the same amount of funding. And I thought I'm probably going to be, you know, disappointed with the level that we get, but we'll get over it. But what I was not expecting was a phone call which said you're not going to be funded because I didn't think it was justified. You know, we were fifth in the world. It wasn't awful. Um, I just couldn't see any justification for removing all funding at all. Um, and so my approach was very much my um, very much an emotional one rather than a head one, which, again, probably goes back a little bit to my both my sporting background, and my military background, which was we're going to do it. I, I, I'm just we're just going to do it. I, I don't know how we're going to do it, but we're going to do it. There's no way I'm going to roll over on this. Absolutely no way. I'd worked, you know, with so many people so hard to get to where we were. But also what it kept me involved in wheelchair rugby, I think mostly was going back to this people element. And that is I, I loved our people. You know, I mean, it's it's very difficult. Not I'm not I'm not sort of um, romantic about this in any sense at all. But, you know, when you see the sort of kind of challenges that some of these individuals have gone through to get to the point they're, they're, they're at, um, you know, and, and some of that I could relate to. Stuart Robinson had his legs blown off in Afghan, you know, military guy like I. I'd met Stuart when he first, you know, arrived in Headley Court from the battlefield introduce them to wheelchair rugby was I really going to tell these people that they couldn't go to to Tokyo that, that it was all over what was I hell no way um and so I always remember um uh, you know everyone was down in the dumps um and I had arranged an early January meeting at Lillishaw our training camp uh, with the whole team and all the squad and and the staff and and they expected me I think to walk in and say well you know game's up because we've got no money and, in, and I, I remember walking in there and they were all sat around in a semicircle in their chairs and heads were down. And I just walked in and said, right, guy, you know, right, guys, girls, um, we're going we're going to Tokyo. You know, you don't need to worry about the money. That's not your business. That's my business. What you've got to worry about is actually why is it your fifth in the world at the moment? You know, what are you doing individually and collectively to make sure you can win a medal in Tokyo? That's that's your only concern. You don't have to worry about the rest of it. And I walked out of the room and it was as short, it's pretty much as short as that. And at the time, and honestly, I didn't have a clue how we're going to get the money. I knew we probably could do with, we could manage with less than the 3 million that we wanted, but I still knew that we needed a couple of million. And I, I honestly didn't know how we we're going to get the 2 million, but things happen, you know, and I went out there, people approached me. I mean, the new chair of, well, he's not the new chair anymore, the chair of, you know, GBWR, Ed Warner, you know, at that time was being involved in athletics. I mean, Ed, I didn't know at all, rang me and said, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'm going to find the money somehow. 
And, you know, he introduced me to a couple of people. So we had a couple of early bites of uh, a little bit of money. And then, of course, you know, UK sport, there ended up being some money after all with a new fund that was launched. And, you know, and so but the real people behind all of that were it was a guy called Roger Olwyn, who, you know, I can't speak highly enough of Roger Olwyn. Don't know if you've come across Roger. Roger's in his 80s now. But Roger had been on the commercial board of London 2012. He'd been a very successful businessman of Lloyd's of London. And Roger introduced me to Lloyd's of London. And by the end of the year, so a year later, I had 26 different brokers and underwriters of Lloyds of London signed up for various amounts of money uh, over the three-year period. And that gave me the, the bedrock of then to build on that to, to actually create enough funding to, to run a reasonable performance program. Um, but again, to show the commitment of people, the coaches came in and said, we will work at no cost. So the coaches weren't paid for four years. Um, And so we created that, that, that team, that, that team through that, that just a real belief in one another that we could do something. Their faith and your faith was rewarded. You raised 2 million pounds. You got to Tokyo. You won the gold medal for Paralympics GB. And now you're delivering the 2023 Wheelchair Rugby European Championships. You've got some experience delivering events because you were the architect of the first ever World Wheelchair Rugby Challenge in 2015. And also you worked with uh, Prince Harry's Invictus Games Foundation. Yes, I met Prince Harry a couple of times and, and certainly at the, uh, at the games in the first games, of course, which were in the Copper Box. Um, back in, I forget when it was, 2015, was it? In the Copper Box. Yeah, I met, I met him then. Yeah, and we had, a, we had a fantastic celebrity team that day and we, we trained that team in the afternoon. Of course, he was, he was in a chair and uh, played a great part in that. And the Invictus Games is a, a terrific event and I suspect with your military background, one that you'll hope goes from strength to strength. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, it's uh, it's given, uh, you know, it, it's given a massive lift to a lot of, you know, service people who just given them something they can really latch onto and really enjoy and, and brings that 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 team together again. I think that's the other important thing is that on a regular basis, that that broader team, I mean, across nations, it brings them all together again. And the European Wheelchair Rugby Championships in Cardiff that Michael mentioned, what are we talking about? How many teams? It's a, it's a week-long competition. Yeah, eight teams. So the top eight teams um, who qualified in Europe. I think it's going to be an amazing event. I mean, we're doing something off the wall again, you know. So this was a bid that I put in two or three years ago. Um, and now I'm having to eat, eat my greens because um, the chair of chair of GB, Ed, Ed Warner, asked me if I would deliver it. So I've now got to deliver the, got to deliver the plan I, I kind of put together, which is which is a mad plan in a way in that we're going to deliver it in the Principality Stadium. So that's a, a fantastic, fantastic venue. It's an fa- amazing venue. And I always say to people that when you go into that venue, even when it's empty, even when there's no one in there, it kind of has an aura, an atmosphere. It's an iconic stadium, the, you know, the best in the world, I think. I'm sorry, sorry being an Englishman to say that to Twickenham, but it's just amazing. And if you put a few people in it, it's even more amazing. So, yeah, so eight teams, um, lasts a week. Um, we're going to do what I sort of call um, building a stadium within a stadium. So, uh, you know, there isn't, I don't have 
any expectation. It would be wonderful, but I don't have any expectation we're going to put 80,000 bums on seats in there. But what we will do is to build a stadium within a stadium, which the Principality Stadium is used to doing in terms of it has boxing events and various other things in there. And then we will play the wheelchair rugby uh, within that uh, within that context. And it's on terrestrial TV as well, I understand. And we saw from the Rugby League World Cup with the, the Wheelchair Rugby League just how popular that was on terrestrial TV. Yeah, I mean, I think Rugby League did an, an amazing job. I think it was a fantastic... I think the whole concept was really thought out well and really delivered well. And I congratulate them. If we can do anything like that, it would be amazing. And, you know, they did a great job there. Um, so, yes, it is. Um, it's on Channel 4. You know, let's go back to Tokyo again um, when we won the gold medal. I mean, Channel 4 did that coverage. I think it was 1.6 million viewers for the final of wheelchair rugby on that on that day. Um, and again, you know, I think it was a million odd for the semis or something. So, that you know, really big numbers uh, watched those, those two events. So we're very hopeful that we can generate that sort of uh, that sort of interest again for, for for that TV coverage. And David, you're organising this event while simultaneously also working on the aid effort in Ukraine at the moment. Tell us a little bit about some of the trips that you've been on in the past 12 months since the invasion. I started off at the start of the war, literally three or four days after the start of the war, and um, originally went down to Warsaw to help them set up um, a crisis centre there, which was delivery, which was at that time really a receiving centre for aid coming in and a distribution centre for aid going out. Um, but very quickly, three or four days after that, I realised that the main effort was going to be up on the border. So I went up to um, uh, the main crossing point, which is a place called Shemesh, uh, on the Ukraine-Polish border. Uh, and the centre of that at the time was the railway station there. And I spent five weeks up there. So really bringing women and children uh, across the, 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 the massive influx while I was there, 1.5 million crossed at that point. Um, and, and it was really a matter of uh, getting them across, giving them what I call immediate care. So that might be medication, it might be food, it might be you know making sure babies and that were, 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 were looked after, and then getting them out of there onto trains and coaches to the various places they were going. So... So when I went away from the original five weeks, where frankly I was exhausted, it was five weeks literally um, just getting people across from the railway station, you know, grabbing a few hours sleep in a sleeping bag in the railway station. That was it. I came back, came back pretty exhausted, to be honest. Um, but then I turned my attention to how could we, how, you know, how could we support the rest? So it's been fundraising this year. And I'm really, you know, I cannot say you know, how grateful I am to so many people who have supported what I've been doing. I mean, this year, we're coming up to almost a year to the um, start of the war now, and I've raised nearly £100,000, which is a huge amount of money and has allowed me to to go out and deliver a lot of stuff. So the trips I've had to date have been into Ukraine, delivering things like we started off with ambulances, so five ambulances, field kitchens. These are these kitchens that can cook about 500 mils. You can take them sort of anywhere so into a place which be which has been sort of you know bomb site frankly and and cook hot meals and deliver 500 meals a day um it's been delivering 10 generators uh 20 um wood burning stoves taking 200 thermal blankets taking more medication taking foodstuffs and just final question then for me david i mean when the invasion first happened in the town that i live in 
we galvanized together. We collected clothes, medicines, and, you know, put them into trucks and, and they went to the border. We have three Ukrainian families living on our street across a number of houses as well. But what made you think you actually wanted to go? I mean, we on our street thought, you know, we've done our bit, to put it bluntly, but you've actually gone out there and seen it for yourself. Why? The first reason is I, I feel I'm blessed. Um, a, I'm lucky I've got a skill set. Um, I, I, I worked for a while, led for a while in NATO. I was in Bosnia and Kosovo after the war doing humanitarian ops. So I've got a skill set, number one. Two, I've got time. I'm an old man now. I'm not working full time. I've got a hugely supportive wife who is kind of gets a bit more anxious about me the more I do this, but is still supportive. And thirdly, because it is about common humanity, you know, we sit here feeling very secure, you know, very happy that everything's great. But you know what? Life's not great. You know, Bosnia and Kosovo wasn't great. This is this is a war on our doorsteps. And I guess what really galvanized me was, you know, you 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 sit with a woman, as I've done, um, who was in Mariupol. I got that woman across with uh, with four children and she came across and I sat with her um, overnight while we were getting ready to get her into a um a coach going somewhere else. Every time there was a bang, her young children threw her threw their fingers into their ears, whatever that bang was, because for two two weeks they'd been living in a basement which had been continually mortared. Her husband was um, was still in Mariupol. Amazingly, because of modern communications, you know, she had uh, some phone contact with him, and. She asked if I would speak to him. I had his little baby sat on my lap in, an, in a railway station in Shemesh, feeding this baby with a bottle, with her holding her mobile phone while I spoke to this guy. And all he could say to me in broken English was, thank you for looking after my family. Thank you for looking after my family. I don't even know where that guy is now because he was part of the Maripol side. And I don't know where she is either because people moved on. But... You know, for me, it's about that kind of common humanity and the fact that if if we don't do this, what you know, where does it all go? You know, what happens? Someone has to do it. I'm lucky. I'm privileged. I'm fortunate to be in a position to do something. Well, as Michael said, David, thank you uh, for what you do. Um, and this has been a very inspirational chat for, for, for many reasons. Two final questions for me. And it, it may be that it's not the biggest important thing, but from a sporting perspective, how do you feel when the Olympics potentially say that Russia and Belarus could be at Paris next year? I, I'm dismayed. I'm absolutely dismayed. That, I mean, that should not happen. Absolutely should not happen. Um, I, you know, th this is, you, you know, there has to be consequences that people, there has to be some ownership. I mean, the, inter the problem we've got at the moment is the whole of our international institutions are broken in the sense that they're not able to do what they were set out to do, even the UN. They're just not, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it, that you've got, you know, United Nations, but actually you've got nations which are allowed to, to unless, we all, unless all those nations, which include Russia, you know, agree to something, it can't happen. I mean, this is a nonsense. 
I mean, all, all of our international institution uh, organizations, most of which were set up after the Second World War to, to, to perform a function, they're no longer fit for purpose, are they? That, that's the truth of the matter. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I mean, I personally believe, and I won't, you know, this won't be very popular with military people who are still serving today, listening to this, you know, old retired Commodore speaking. But you know, I think NATO needed to man up earlier. You know, I worked for NATO, so you know, I've sat in the operational cells at the time of Bosnia and Kosovo, and, and I, I can just imagine some of the conversations and the politics that were going on, but. But 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 I think that we actually we actually have to man up. We actually have to we have to get in there. And we have to demonstrate that this is just not acceptable because it's a bit like the bully in the playground. At what point do you stop the bully acting? Because he carries on bullying otherwise. And last question: Does David Pond ever retire? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, lots of people ask me that. My, <laughs> I've still got loads and loads of energy, and I still believe that we've all got a responsibility to to really look after one another and care for one another. And I think there'll be bits of pieces like that that I'll always want to do. Well, what a terrific way to end this episode of Great British Bosses. David Pond, Chair of the Event Delivery Board for the 2023 Wheelchair Rugby European Championships being held in Cardiff later on this year thank you very much for speaking to anything but footy oh, thank you both very much thank you for the opportunity I really appreciate it and hopefully you'll come to Cardiff Sports Social Podcast Network Okay round two name something that's not boring a Laundry Ooh a book club Computer Solitaire Huh Ah oh, sorry we were looking for Chumba Casino that's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.